This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers. Based over three stories in Shoreditch, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes with a space and a community designed specifically for them. To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work at home or in a noisy cafe. The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts and book launches. The first floor is an open plan common room. It is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and a large book collection. Anyone from novelists to screenwriters to unpublished aspirants is welcome. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always Take Notes listeners are eligible for a five-day pass to Clean Prose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN Welcome 5. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel spoke with Lisa Tadeo, the author of Three Women. We talked about the lengthy process of writing the book, her fiction, and the best time to call an editor. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Lisa Tadeo, to Always Take Notes. Um, last time we spoke, your book, Three Women, had not yet been published, and now it's a New York Times bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller, and you won the Foils nonfiction book of the year award um you spent so congratulations thank on you those. thank you um, you spent eight years working on three women mm-hmm. is that right so you take a trio of ordinary americans and explore their desires their personal lives their emotional lives um can you take us right back to the genesis of the idea um last time we spoke you said you were originally planning to write a work of fiction well, yeah, I did. I had written a book of fiction, so I thought that, um, yes, and I, I, I yes, I, I was, I mostly have, well, I actually wrote both. I used to write articles for magazines like Esquire. Uh, so I, but, so I was comfortable with nonfiction, but I didn't think I was going to do it at book length. And so, yes, I, I didn't, I didn't know I was going to do it. I, I didn't know that my first book was going to be nonfiction. You've mentioned that you're inspired by Thy Neighbor's Wife, a book by Gatelees, which explored the sexual mores of America in the 1980s. Um, how much did that shape your, your own writing? It, I wouldn't say it shaped my own writing. Uh, I would say that, um, well, you know, I would say that to start with, uh, Gatelees wrote a magazine story called uh, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold that I think almost every writer has read especially magazine writers and i loved it i thought it was amazing what i thought was the most brilliant about it was that frank sinatra the subject of the piece was not giving mr talese any access so so gay talese went to i think it was either it was either la and palm springs a combination of the two and he was sort of following frank sinatra around and it was his entourage right yes yeah. and and talking to the person who got made his wigs uh, or prepared his wigs so it was it was it was things like that that i found so so intelligent to do it that way if somebody wasn't giving you access a sort of roundabout reporting so that really sort of made me feel that idea of of going very deep in a way that was in fact deeper than having access to the subject and so thy neighbor's wife was immersive in the sense that he had spent a decade writing this book uh, and also just talking to the people becoming a manager of the massage parlors that he that he was writing about so it was intensely immersive in multiple ways so i thought that those aspects of it i admired um, but I wouldn't say they, sh- I, I would, so that's what I would say that the notion of, um, of immersive reporting shaped mm-hmm. the way that I thought about reporting. Cause you moved to the women's towns while you were writing the book. Yes. Um, two, two of the women in the book and many of the women who did not, um, quote unquote, make it into the book. <laughs> uh, how did you go about finding 
your subjects? I I began by sort of um, just like posting ads and and emailing random, not random people, people I knew, posting on Craigslist, uh, emailing therapists and calling them and calling lawyers and reading magazine stories and newspaper stories and kind of trying to um, calling people basically. And that sort of wasn't working out in a sense. So I, I then started to, uh, I started to feel like it would be best to find my subjects by, I guess in a more analog way. So I drove across the country uh, six times the first time that I did, I met a doctor in Indiana who was very close to the Kinsey Institute. And I he seemed to really understand what I needed, whereas a lot of people don't understand when, what kind of a subject you need. Uh, and he introduced me to a number of women who were interested in talking to me. And several of them were really interesting. So I moved to Indiana kind of on a whim. I didn't really tell too many people I was doing it and I started a discussion group in the back room of the doctor's office so that's how I started figuring out the way that I wanted to to find people in sort of a more I don't know I don't know kind of like a I don't know how to describe it but in a way that felt more just I don't know real genuine I don't know yeah. what to call it and when you'd identified subjects that you thought were going to be kind of more open to your project how did you then start kind of building those relationships? I wasn't really thinking about building them. It was more just being there and following them around when they when they <laughs> would have me. Uh, so it wasn't with Lena, for example. She was, uh, she was, uh, you know, her marriage was sort of falling apart. Her husband said he didn't want to kiss her on the mouth, and she was taking she was meeting up with her high school lover, and so for. For Lena, it was more about she was just so wanting to gush and uh, just tell someone. Mm. So it was so it was so easy in a sense uh, to to have her talk. And in another sense, um, it was it was like she was telling her story more than I was asking it. Was it harder with uh, Maggie, for example, to tease out her? inner thoughts and feelings on on her yes. ordeal. It was definitely harder. Um, it was definitely harder because there was a lot more, not that there wasn't pain involved in Lena's story, but with Maggie, there was, she had been misused by the local media in Fargo, North Dakota. So she was a little bit more frightened by, by what, what talking about it would yield. And with Sloan, she sort of needed to talk the least. And so with her, I mean, sometimes it would go like weeks where she wouldn't really respond to me. Like not not respond, just like not kind of, I knew that she wasn't interested in, in talking at that time or she was too busy because she, she had a very busy job and a busy life. So yeah, so with Sloan and, and Maggie was definitely harder, whereas with Lena it was nearly like a perfect storm of of her wanting to talk and me needing to listen. So it was great. Mm. So you were surprised, I guess, by how willing she was to, to open up and how much she was willing to, to share with you as a writer. Yes, definitely. Knowing that you were going to obviously put this down and yes. on the page. Was there a kind of formal contract or anything that was drawn up between, between you and the three women? No, in fact, what I said and why I ended up losing a lot of subjects was that uh, if at any time they wanted to scrap something or even scrap the whole situation that they obviously could because it wasn't like I was writing about a politician or something. So so there was no contract. In fact, I almost feel like it was the opposite of a contract. Uh, it was kind of like this loose, you know, promise of them, there maybe being in a book. And I didn't mm -hmm. know how much they would be in a book. I didn't know if they would be a chapter, the whole book or nothing at all. Uh, so so there was sort of this fluidity of both parties not knowing, but kind of being okay with the way that it moved mm -hmm. along. Did they get approval of the drafts? Or? Yeah, I sent them, I also sent them all the book 
before it was published Mm -hmm. and they were able to make changes did they change anything kind of substantive or was it more not at all there were like little details and little things like oh i don't want this will hurt this person's feelings can we you know there was stuff like that but nothing at all and like also changes like oh you know what Uh, there were some ads too like i would like to add to this part because um yeah, and there were things that I'd cut out for space that they wanted me to put back in. So there was a lot of that. Mm. Originally, it was your first draft of your manuscript was four, five women. It well, it went. It was like twenty, and then it was fifteen, <laughs> and then it was ten, and then it was five. So it kept getting cut. Yeah. Um. I mean, word count was getting cut down too. It was probably like like now I think it's like a hundred and twenty thousand words. It was like four hundred thousand words. Oh. I had like twenty thousand words on each of the women more and you had like hundreds of thousands of words of notes right yes of notes period and I've written stuff too I mean I had like a lot of Mm. you know because I take notes and then I kind of I transcribe immediately and then I kind of write through it so I don't forget the emotion of the moment which I think is sometimes more important than like I wasn't I wasn't, um, it wasn't a Q&A, so I was kind of, you know, I was trying to get the spirit of what they were saying, which I was, and I wasn't going to quote too much, and I kind of knew that, so, um, so that was why it was, I needed to do the other thing more. How did you go about whittling it down then? Was it just which stories you thought would resonate most with people, or was there something was it more about having a kind of mix of experiences? What what influenced your decision to settle on Maggie Sloan and Lena? Well, you know, actually, I don't think that they were enough of a mix, and I wanted more of a mix, and that was, you know, that in, was in one. What, of, in what way were they? Not I wanted enough? different races. I wanted different. I mean, I think I really wanted a different socioeconomic spectrum, and I think I did that well. Um, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of. I wanted different, even though Sloan was kind of bisexual, um, it wasn't it wasn't enough kind of to, but then again, it was three women, it wasn't 10 women, and I had those things in the 10 women. And what was upsetting when I lost one woman who was, you know, a different race and a different um, sexual predilection, but uh, so it was difficult to lose the people that I lost and there were some men in the end too in the in those final 10 there were two men actually no I'm sorry three men uh and and what happened was when you had like let's say the let's say the final 10 you would we had these three women who were not only the largest in word count they were also the most they weren't it's not even that they were the most compelling they just had given me the most the most information that I'd been with them for like two years with Maggie for like three years with Sloan for like a year and two years it it was all so long and with the other people while I'd spent six months with them and I was still talking to them every time I was with a different person I was still talking to other people Mm -hmm. and vice versa so but they had just let me into their hearts and mine so much more than the others so when you looked at those three and then you looked at the other seven and the other five it was like the other ones were filler and it could feel it felt like that so it felt like you were just kind of right like you know everyone who had read it like my editor etc were like I'm only like skipping to get to these three Mm. so that was the reason kind of wrote itself almost how did almost wrote itself they pick themselves up. yes exactly exactly <laughs> on a more kind of basic structural level how did you organize go about organizing the book with all of those notes um, i think so... we mentioned you had like post-it notes on yes. the wall <laughs> i had post-it notes on the wall it was like crazy it was a lot of work um it was it was probably the second most difficult thing after finding them even though the other things took longer that was it was more you know flowy the how to organize it was very was very difficult um so it was post-it notes it was so much moving around and so much reading it 
reading it through and so much like balancing with math of word count and I wanted there to be a sort of natural flow of you know if someone lost their virginity I want I didn't want the next person to lose their virginity but I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be a certain the same certain feel like this sort of even though it's not told in chronological order um it's I wanted it to feel like each one was growing to the same narrative Mm. point. Was it quite an intensive editing process then? It wasn't that much. It wasn't intensive. Um, I mean, it was it was great, um, but it wasn't intensive. I think it was, uh, you know, my editor is really amazing and he's very like just he sees things right away whereas I've had some editors that kind of make you do something and then they're like actually I like it the first way (laughs) so I've had a lot of that but this is he's never like that so that's why I think it was easy um you mentioned crisscrossing America several times Mm -hmm. how much financial support did you get for all of that eight period that eight years um, from your publishers? Well, it was a two-year contract, so I did <laughs> not get an eight-year amount of money. Okay. So it was almost, Im- it was very difficult. It was, which is why I'm, my debt is insane. So when people are like, oh my God, you're, I'm like, I literally, well, one, I haven't, like any money that I make for the next however long is going to go into that debt. Wow. That's how bad it is. Yeah. Were you working on other, you know, journalism and short fiction at the same time well I was working on I was working on other journalism which is you know not that pays well I was working on short fiction was which does not pay well (laughs) um and my husband who I met in the process uh, worked at a Kmart because we were in we were in different place he worked Mm. at a Kmart to support us to an extent uh, taking photo um with a fine arts degree in photography um, taking pictures in a local Kmart for like Christmas photos and stuff. So um, there was a lot of there was a lot of strange things. It was hard. It's quite a personal toll. <laughs> yes. How did how was it uprooting your family as well to to do this? But I mean, it was hard. It was very hard. Um, my daughter sometimes says I miss our house, and I say which one because we've moved around a lot. <laughs> Um, you said I read one of your columns for the Sunday Times where you talk about reporting three women and you've got your infant daughter strapped to your chest oh, yeah. and she went with you everywhere. Um, I mean, that must be quite challenging. You don't hear of many male authors either taking their no. child while they're writing their no, you celebrated book. <laughs> you certainly don't. Um, yes, uh, it was really hard. It's hard. It's really harder now, to be honest, because um, I'm still bringing her around. And um, it's harder now because there, like when I was reporting, I, I chose my hours. And I, you know, I mean, obviously, it depended on it, she was mostly with me for the things when I was trying to find new people. So it was easier, in a sense to like, I wasn't at the mercy of someone else's schedule, but I would go into bars when I could, you know, and I had her with me. And um, yeah, so it was easier then than it is now. Um, I love that image of a baby in a in a dive bar. <laughs> I have a picture of it. <laughs> You'll have to show me after okay. this. Um, to come back to your Sunday Times column, um, it's monthly, right? Um, mm-hmm. How did that come about well I think I'm only taking over for Dolly Uh, Alderton for six months so um but yeah they asked me to do it and I thought it was sounded amazing and even though I have tons of work to do I thought it was great and it's you know the things come to me fairly easily because uh you know I just had so much sort of left over and so many things that happened during the time period that um yeah and did you have, given the success of Three Women, quite a lot of freedom to set the parameters of, of the column? If you're covering for someone else, did they have a kind of expectation of what it would look like? Or I don't, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I, like an expectation of what the columns would look like? I don't think so. I haven't really been, um, I haven't really been told what to do. Okay. 
so yeah <laughs> yeah quite a lot of creative freedom yeah. then uh-huh. um you've drawn on personal spirit experience in some of those columns and and features elsewhere what do you think the advantages if you like of telling personal stories are i just think they're better um you know i think that in, in terms of writing i i think the best writing and the writing that i like to read the most is the most personal and i think that it's really hard to be personal but i think that once you start doing it you're like oh whatever and you know i've heard um i've done a lot of interviews and, and things and i've i've been more personal every time and you know sometimes people say terrible things but sometimes people say amazing things afterwards so it's like whatever you know i mean i've just gotten to a place where not that i don't care but that i just like people are going to say something anyway mm-hmm. and what is the point of kind of hiding who you like i have hidden who i am from my friends and i'm at a point now where I, it almost feels more easier just not more easier but i'm sorry more and then i was like more easier i'm like my daughter says more easier and i'm like it's just easier and sometimes i don't correct her because it's so cute um (laughs) but sometimes it's easier when i'm in front of like a crowd at a reading to be honest Mm. than it is to do it in front of my friends so when my friends have come to readings i'm kind of i'm almost i'm definitely more nervous because i'm like oh what are they gonna think yeah and i'm telling this story that you know or i'm telling this story of someone who was with it with me in it in the room which is incredibly but i forget and i'm like oh shit like that friend of mine is in the room and what are they gonna think about even though i'm not naming her Mm. or him it's like have you, you know? had any, have they kind of approached you afterwards and said, I didn't didn't agree with your telling of that story or no, you know your what? version of events? <laughs> no, and what's so weird is that people tend to, I, I'm shocked by that. People tend to respect uh, someone's writing and their, their, uh, their kind of, their just, they're like, their right to tell a story mm. in a way that I'm shocked. Yeah. So no, I haven't had that. That's good. I've had that from celebrities and politicians that I've written about, but no, none of my friends. And I don't care about it so much from those people because mm. they're not people I care about. So I'm like, oh, you know, we can talk about this. If you're concerned about the veracity of something, then that's fine. But mm. if you're concerned about the way you came off here, then, you know, that's not my problem. Yeah. So on the whole, you're not concerned about sharing too much. That's not something you just kind of, it's about the story itself rather than. Yeah, I mean, I just, I have made my peace with who I am. Uh, I think, um, you know, I mean, I'll, most people do that through their lives as they get older. Uh, and I think people also stop caring as they get older. That, but I think about what people say when they're in their 60s and 70s and they're so free about what they feel and what they did. And when I see that, I'm just like, oh my God, that is so cool. It's so cool. It's so interesting. It's so cool to have gotten there. And I'm thinking like, what's the point of not getting there sooner? Mm. Um, you've discussed relationships of all kinds um between sexual partners mothers and daughters um a widow and her late husband um it's not really a narrow focus per se but have you noticed that you're getting more commissions about sex and relationships and are you worried about given the range of things that you've written about are you worried about being seen as someone who just deals in a kind of that area of human experience you know i was worried about that with when I was at Esquire, when I was writing for them, um, I was worried about that because they were, at, but then they also asked me to do politicians and sports, um, sportsmen and, and yeah, the, LeBron James is yeah a little different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, and I was happy. I was, th- that made me happy. So no, they weren't pigeonholing me, but I felt that I would be because I was a woman writing for a men's magazine and I felt that and because I had written a couple of stories and then I wrote one for New York magazine that was heavily about um, sexual. I was worried about that. But Mm -hmm. so even so now I feel like after three women, I don't I don't feel that way. I mean, my the column that I've been doing 
for the times I you know I've kind of leaned in that direction in more like relationships only because I'm really interested in it mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting on a short sort of like short um space to do that because mm-hmm. it's interesting to me and I think to have more space there's more space for for like you know different subjects that uh, are appealing to me but I think need more room A message from our sponsor, the Faber Academy Creative Writing School. Everyone has a novel in them, or so the saying goes, but not everyone knows where to begin. The Getting Started Beginner's Fiction course at the Faber Academy will teach you everything you need to call yourself a writer. By studying stimulus texts and completing exercises, you will gain an understanding of all the important elements of storytelling. The course offers advice on good writing habits, turning ideas into stories and engaging readers. You will receive constructive and rigorous feedback on your writing throughout. There are three versions of the Getting Started Beginner's Fiction course. The evening class and the day class consist of 12 two-hour sessions hosted at Faber's headquarters in Bloomsbury, London. The online class, meanwhile, offers eight weeks of learning and support to be completed at your own pace. Places for all of these courses to commence in April are still available. Always Take Notes listeners can receive a 10% discount by using the code ALWAYSTAKENOTES2020. To book, go to faberacademy.co.uk. So let's talk about some of the pieces you've written for magazines in the past, uh, specifically for Esquire, the Heath Ledger mm-hmm. piece. You fictionalised his last days. Um, could you tell us a bit more about how that came to be commissioned? So I, um, I always wanted to write for Esquire, and I... Somebody once told me, and I think it's the best advice I've been given about uh, how to sort of get someone to pay attention to you. And it's the advice I always give when, like, writers ask me what my advice is. And it's to call an editor early in the morning. Uh, (laughs) And you've got a full brain capacity. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I just, like, well, I, what it is is that they get into work often early because that you know if they're you know sort of hard-working editors they'll get Mm -hmm. in kind of early most of the time and they're not sometimes their secretaries aren't in yet or their assistants aren't in and so they'll often pick up the phone themselves and so I I did that with um with David Granger and he like picked up the phone and I just asked him if we could go to breakfast or something and we went to breakfast like a couple of days later into this really great diner and I I had all these ideas and like I I was like can I you know here's all here's a printout of all my ideas and he read the ideas and I also sent him a piece of fiction that I'd written and he loved the fiction but all the other ideas he's like these are very like magazine-y and they're cool but like you know, I don't want you to do that. Just let's wait and I'll figure out what I want you to do. And I thought he was just blowing me off. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, thanks. I'm like, these were like 20 ideas that I spent like a week coming up with. And so Heath Ledger died. Um, and he, David Granger, emailed me the next morning. How did Heath Ledger die? Um, what do you think happened? Can you go and find out everything that you can? And then sort of imagine what the rest would have been and can I have it in four days wow and I was like you know it was what was your initial reaction shock yes my initial reaction was no it was like I got it this is awesome Mm -hmm. um and I wasn't scared because I was but here's the other thing is that my mom was sick and Mm -hmm. so uh what so I felt a sort of I wasn't I wasn't going to do anything. My dad had also died a couple of years prior. So I was very connected to death and I didn't want to write anything that would be like yucky or would make mm. people feel bad. So and I don't I'm not saying it didn't do that. I don't know, you know, from the reactions of people who were close to him. I didn't hear them, but I didn't want to do that. And I didn't think and one of the 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 advice that David Granger gave me, which is one of the most beautiful um, words of advice I've ever gotten, 
was, you know, it, it, it can be this, it can be that, but the thing it has to be above all is beautiful. And I was like, oh, that's like, okay. Um, so I went, I went, I, um, I talked to the massage therapist who had found him, who found him dead. I talked to the, the waiter who had last served him his food. So I found that he had like steak and eggs. And I just found that a bunch of little details that were, um, were just telling, not telling of what he had done, but just like interesting to get those. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, some of it was like, this didn't feel like suicide because he was a kind of like living his normal life. Mm. And, um, and then anyway, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking way too much about this. So I, uh, I turned in a piece that was like multi voiced. It was like, you know, um, it was from like, eight different points of view, including the Olsen mm-hmm. twin that he was um, friends Very with. Cute. Yes. Uh, and so it was all these different voices. And I was, you know, I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was quite clever. I sent it in. And um, whenever something is not going to be okay, it takes a while for an answer to come back. I don't know if other people find that, but in my, there's always like this sort of gap in time window. where you, yeah, like a long window where it's like, oh, shit. And so after a longer window than I would have expected. How, uh, how, how long of a window? I don't remember. It was like maybe a day, but okay. then, you know, it had to be like it. So it was, yeah. it wasn't like it had to, you know, it was a month later that it had to be in. So, a day was too long, um, and I knew that. And then the editor who I'd been working with also on the piece, who ended up becoming my editor for every other piece that I did for them, he was like, hey, this is good, but I don't think it's right for the magazine right now, so we can put it online. And now online is, you know, great. Mm. But back then it was like, oh, God. Like, it was sort of like... Wasteland. Yeah, like burying it. And um, I was really upset. And I went home and I smoked like a thousand cigarettes and I was crying and I was so upset because I felt like I'd ruined. Did they offer you the opportunity to fix it? Did they no. say what they didn't like about it? No. Okay. Not at all. Um, yeah, it was. Well, they were like, you know, I think they were more worried about how to fill the space immediately. So they're probably just like, she's not going to be able to do this in like a day. So I went home. I cried for like hours and then it was like midnight and I just rewrote something completely different and without of your own volition you just kind of yeah another go yeah yeah I don't I just was like I can't let this go and then I sent it in at like 6 a.m and I said you know you guys don't even have to read this I just needed to do it for myself of course I was hoping they would read it but I was like you know I just Mm. and then with like 45 minutes they were like this is great and Mm. we're gonna publish it Great. Yeah. But so it wasn't yeah, that went so out it well. Wasn't, it was not an easy road though. I mean, it was scary and At what point did you think I need to tell it from his point of view? Cuz inhabiting his voice must have been a bit of a challenge and a bit and a bit more sensitive than yeah. than telling it from different viewpoints. I just it just came it just it was like, you know, I, I did um, the novel that I started writing that's going to come out, I think, sometime next year that I started writing at my um, my MFA program at Boston University. I wrote it in third person, not the whole thing, maybe like the first like 70 pages. Mm-hmm. And I handed it in to my teacher and he said um, that it was good. You know, it should be third person and then I was like you know I think it should be first person and he was like I, I don't I don't think it should be so <laughs> I don't <laughs> no and so I I rewrote it um with first person and I handed it in and he was like you're right you know so I think that sometimes it's just I tend I don't know sometimes it's just the story needs whatever mm. it needs do you think have you found that it's easier to capture the essence, I mean, that's a horrible phrase, but capture the essence of a person in a profile or by kind of fictionalizing their voice? Um, I think I think it's just, you know, you can't really fictionalize profiles. I mean, no, I think sorry, I mean, was... um, I mean flesh out a kind of a character in a story, so to speak. Um, 
I mean, I think it's easier to do it in fiction. I think that with nonfiction, you're at the mercy of the facts. And what you have to do is excavate the facts as much as you can and go deeper and deeper. Whereas with fiction, you can just start at the deep and not worry about how it how you got there. Mm. Does Is there any similarity in your the way that you write or approach fiction to reporting um for example do you plan it in the same to the same kind of nth degree or do you kind of see is it a bit more organic than that you mean the both of Write, them writing fiction specifically uh yeah i don't plan it i don't plan it at all um just blank page yeah i just and it and it either sucks or it doesn't <laughs> Um, and I either, I know right away. And if it sucks, I just, I, I don't, um, I know, I usually know right away. You don't, um, if it sucks or you think that it sucks, do you go through drafts or you just kind of bin it? I probably just start it different. I either start the same thing completely differently or I, um, I just do a different subject. If you think it's good, would you, how many kind of? drafts would you fine-tune it or do you I've never done more than one draft really yeah and I mean no with with three women I've done and yeah. with any non-fiction with fiction but a, but a short story for example you would no. just and my husband thinks it's insane um and he doesn't get it and I I don't know I just what I do I'll switch I'll make I'll go through and make lines better um you know but I'll never Re Although with my novel now, I'm definitely redoing the third part a lot. So, but it's different with a longer piece. You mm -hmm. have to make it like, it's a math equation to an extent. Yeah. With a short piece, it's like, it's it has to have emotion. I almost think emotion's like the only thing that matters. And I mean, I do think plot matters, but I think that for me... um for me, the plot is secondary mm -hmm. in a in a, short, in a piece. short piece. Yeah. So with your novel, are you finding that you have to plan it more? Or are you doing the same sort of thing? I did not it? really plan it the first time, which might be the reason that I'm redoing most of their <laughs> section. Um, what I did plan was the, not plan, what came naturally was the tone and the voice. So that hasn't wavered at all. Mm -hmm. um, but the plot of it will and, and has, so. Can you tell us anything about the book? You know, yeah. I don't like talking about <laughs> fiction. And the reason that I don't is because it's like not real people, right? Yeah. It Generally. might be, it, right. Yeah. It might be, <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, like, I think that I base, I make like one character sometimes out of like five different people mm -hmm. and or two different people. Um, it's rare that I'll make one completely out of one person mm -hmm. because I think that that kind of, then it's like too much like nonfiction. You kind of feel like you have to stick to these facts and you sort of get like hung up on them. But um, yeah, but I think talking about fiction, it's like you're like kind of like, and then this person did this, but it's not real. You know what I mean? So like I just, well, I mean, what it is is like um, a woman, uh, a woman, a, a man shoots himself in front of a woman while she's having dinner with another man. And then she's, it begins this sort of like, it's a reason for her to drive across the country from New York to Los Angeles to find somebody who is kind of the key to her past and to why that would have happened. Well, what kind of genre would you, would you put that in? I don't know. I'm trying <laughs> to make it more thriller-y yeah. um just because I you know I've never really well you know it's funny because I I grew up reading Stephen King mm. and it's like my favorite um thing and like I wrote this story that um that was like you know really weird and very like not um like um what is it called like surreal it was like it was like it was like you know like a horror-ish Mm. um not real thing and I sent it in to a couple of literary magazines and they were just like 
this is weird. We don't do this. Because <laughs> um, literary magazines tend to like, you know, plotless. You know, I'm walking around and, and I'm, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, but this was very plotty and it was very like thrillery. So then I sent it to, I was like, whatever. I sent it this thing called The Ghost Story. Like it's like a magazine and I won the grand prize, which was like $1,000, which was lovely because it was more than I've ever gotten paid for short fiction at, up until that time. Um so anyway, that so so I I'm not saying I want to make it more like that, but buoyed but, by the success of that, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Does it have? I'm assuming it doesn't have horror-ish elements. No, it's totally real. Would like you ever um, do a novel? Do an ode to Stephen King. I, I would. I might try I, I might try i don't think i could try on the, this first <laughs> novel thing mm-hmm. um i think people would be quite surprised yeah i think <laughs> it would be like kind of too much of a surprise that i think that you know later you can do that and hopefully it's okay i mean i don't even know what it's going to be like for someone to be like oh she like fiction like people who haven't read my short stories like i don't know what they're gonna feel although a lot of people who have come to my readings have said i can't wait to you know i like fiction more um you know and i was like oh that's good because so like it's have some more coming yeah exactly (laughs) but it's like for me it's like i never really i read more fiction than nonfiction, so I keep thinking that there's nonfiction readers and fiction readers and that so, you know, but to to hopefully the genres, the sort of mixing of them will be okay. I'm sure it will. (laughs) Is is there a format, I'm not sure that's the right word, but between journalism, nonfiction writing and short stories and longer fiction, is there one that you prefer working in? By format, you mean? Yeah. What do you mean by format? Do you find it easier to write I'm guessing maybe you find easier to find to write short fiction. Yes, short fiction's the easiest for me. It's I can write a short story in like three hours that I think is good. Oh. Like uh, I mean, that, I know that sounds like, but I've been doing it since I was like ten years old. So it's like come, it's just it, I just love it so much that I think that's what it is. So it's my preferred mode, mm-hmm. um, and I just want to I want to write, and I know like nobody like like nobody buys it. You know, um, short story collections are like the second, like you tell an editor, like, oh, and I also have this short fiction collection. They're like, oh, Christ, because it doesn't, they don't, I mean, I, I don't like know. coming back into fashion. I days. hope so, because yeah. the one after the novel is a collection of short fiction that I feel like everyone who's publishing it is just kind of like, oh, God. Already, is it new stuff? Already published stuff? A mix? Most of it's already published. Have you, you've won the Pushcart Prize twice mm-hmm. have you found that there's something that judges of such prizes are looking for in in such pieces and you've also won awards for sports writing and american political writing yes which is funny because my husband always says you don't know anything about sports or politics how did you and i'm like well i mean i really learned it while i was there and then i've it's completely gone out of my head but um i don't know what they're looking for I I don't know because things like that are totally blind which it's different than getting into a literary magazine because it's often really hard to get into your first literary magazine um it's also hard to get into your second it's not till like you know I don't know it takes a long time and it's like one of the most I don't know it's it's a difficult process and um so I don't know what judges are looking for. I I do think that I I think that the stories that won are good stories, but I don't know what they're looking for. You don't feel any pressure to be particularly experimental stylistically or touch on a certain theme, you just I I don't try to touch on a certain theme. I do like to be stylistically interesting Mm -hmm. I like to be different from story to story and I like to push the boundaries of um of what because there aren't I don't think there should be boundaries you know in writing so I think that that's um yeah yes is there anything that you think links 
your would you say that's what links your the different modes of your writing kind of a stylistic appreciation and experimental yeah sensibility I would say so I think that it's I mean the first couple of times I I wrote nonfiction. I'm trying to think because you know I don't I think I've never written non like regular nonfiction and the reason or no I have but not at first like not Esquire gave gives you a wide breadth Mm -hmm. um and or at least you know I don't haven't written for them in a while but David Granger when he was the editor did he was like you know my editor there like the one I worked with said like you know just do something just be crazy and I'll take it down from crazy if I need to which I thought was so so helpful and so like which were some of the crazy things that you wanted to write about or did write about no no like crazy like within the piece okay like just go nuts like you know just do whatever you like just talk about like the building that you're in for like you know five pages or whatever um you know whatever just like whatever I had done and then he'd be like all right I think we only need the building for one paragraph but (laughs) it had made me really pay attention to the building um so yeah, I mean, I think that, but I did, I've written, when I, I know that um, magazines are going to be more, more regular, like in what they want, I, um, I, I've tried to write the way that they want, which is why I don't write for certain types of magazines anymore, because I know that they're not going to want what I do. I think they think that they want what I do and then when it comes down to it they just like shave it all down Mm. um and so it's just not interesting to me so which magazines do you think are the most willing to give writers kind of full creative expression I mean honestly Esquire uh, David Granger's Esquire was one of the only like large subscription magazines that I think did that I can't think of other large magazines that Mm. let you do that um I think a lot of them like that's not to say that like I think Harper's has beautiful prose um all the time but I don't think it I don't think it would let someone like a Barry Hannah write for them um you know, I don't think they'd let, like, you know, a Gary Lutz write for them. And so, so whereas I think es- Esquire would have and hopefully still does. I hear you're among a limited group of Playboy contributors. Oh, yeah, Playboy. I'm sorry. I didn't. I, I, it's funny because Playboy has been so recent. I, and I wrote fiction for them. So I don't think of, like, and then I wrote nonfiction. Um, and, I, the nonfiction I was writing, I kind, I wasn't really going to submit it. I wouldn't know what I was going to do with it. And then I finished it and I was like, what would this be good for? And then I was like, you know, es- I didn't, I didn't not think of Esquire just, mm-hmm. I re- because I had just done fiction for um, Playboy and loved the editor that I'd worked with. I was just, it was like a natural, um, yeah. So yes, Playboy is fantastic. But I also think that Playboy has, they've always done fiction, which I think when a magazine does fiction, they're open to nonfiction that's weird. Yeah. I was getting at the, in that you've contributed both fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I think like four other writers that have done Oh, it. yeah. Is that, I've I thought you were being that. very modest. <laughs> oh, n- no. I mean, I didn't, you know, I heard that at some point. But I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess that's, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yes, I'm not trying to be modest. I just like, I very, Forgot. yeah, honestly, <laughs> kind of. Um, do you still find pitching an inconvenience or do you quite enjoy it? Do you find now that more people are coming to you asking you to produce? Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. So that's happening a lot. But a lot of the sort of asking me to do something, if it's something specific that they want, it's often not something I'm like if it's like a reported piece, which um, like I don't like someone asking me to do. Well, no, there's been actually someone asked me to do something recently that is 
supposed to be a heavily not supposed to be but would be a heavily reported piece and i think Mm -hmm. it's a great subject and i'm probably going to do it but the issue is the length of time and how much time i have which is very little so so like essays and stuff i'm like yeah i'm like i'll do it'll take me like you know especially if it's something that you know is easy for me to talk about we're running out of time but is there anything that you hope that readers take away from from your work um, I hope that, I hope that, you know, from three women, I hope that it's about not judging other women, specifically not judging other women. From my other work, I, I don't know, I guess that it's okay to be oneself, um, to not like, you know, to not, just to not judge anyone for being oneself. I think that's so weird and mm-hmm. we do it so much and like, there's just we're not we don't allow ourselves to talk about things that are nuanced and it's you know I think it's a real problem so I'm very nuanced I think that's probably the thing that I'm the most interested in and I think that you know I just hope that people see that nuance is freeing and extremes are not great well thanks very much for having us So, Rachel, this is the uh, Lisa Tadeo post-mortem. Uh, fascinating interview. What what really stuck in your mind from that? Um, a few things. Mostly the financial burden of writing Three Women. It's great that it's been so successful because I think otherwise that's such a load to take on. Um, yeah, she definitely went through the mill to produce it and great yeah. that it's receiving the kind of credit uh, and reward, no doubt financial it is now. I was also staggered by the fact that she doesn't do drafts. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? I think I was on the audio, there's just a kind of there's like, silence <laughs> where I try and process it. I mean, there's um, some nuance to that in that I think she does. The book clearly went through drafts. But I, I, mm. get, I get the kind of fiction, just letting it all flow thing. But fascinating on that. And I also fear that there's going to be phalanxes of magazine editors now fielding early morning phone calls because <laughs> we've revealed that trick. And getting lots of uh, rewritten drafts of things if they don't respond within 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was a fascinating interview. Rachel, what have you been up to otherwise? Um, coming up with some ideas for future pieces that I'd like to write. Um, getting on top of all the Oscars films before they come out. How about you? Uh, I have been uh, closing a piece, uh, a long read for The Guardian, which by the time this airs should uh, already be out, which is good to have that away and off my chest, Uh, and forging forward with uh, various other magazine projects and also a fiction project, which is Mm, exciting. Exciting. Uh, Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to read, leave a review on iTunes, please do so. And Rachel, who's coming up on the show in the next episode? Our next episode is with Giles Hattersey, the features director at Vogue. And he had lots of interesting insights about what it's like to work at such a famous brand and of course that special edition guest edited by the Duchess of Sussex. A lot to look forward to there and we hope you tune in.